I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. Um, so many of you guys have been eagerly anticipating us coming back together and having another broadcast. Now, we did have the broadcast last week. That's right. Which was with uh, San, or with Dan, Dan Wallace. The different uh, Ann, Sam, Dan. Nobody would mistake me for Dan Wallace. <laughs> yeah, or, or vice versa. No. <laughs> Uh, with Dan on the manuscripts of the New Testament, and I hope you enjoyed that. But we're back in the studio with Tim and Sam. Hey, Sam. I'm doing well. By the way, a little point of trivia. Dan probably doesn't even remember this. I graded the very first textual critical paper that that man ever wrote in seminary. Well, he did tell me that last did week. He tell yeah, you? he did. Yeah. He said he's he never forgot such a humiliation in his life. <laughs> no, he said that's what springboarded him into No, the know. humiliation was on my part when I realized who is this man and where did he come from? I felt so <laughs> utterly incompetent. I thought I can't grade this. <laughs> Do tell so his first paper showed that he had a propensity towards this stuff. He was uh, he was highly competent when he arrived at seminary, let's just put it that way. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Hmm. Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Out of town last week? Yep, yep. In the San Francisco area and uh, able to teach on archaeology, and it was really fun. And you're teaching on archaeology here at the Credo House as well. That's right. This coming Tuesday for two Tuesdays. Only two? Only two. And yep. what are you covering? I'm going to cover the basically the ten most significant biblical discoveries uh, as it relates to ar- archaeological discoveries as it relates to biblical evidence towards its accuracy. Why are you? Why why is that a area for you? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I just kind of stumbled in it. <laughs> it. I just find it interesting, and uh, the discoveries are very interesting. And I don't think in any way is it uh, we believe these things and or we need these things so that we'll believe in Christ. But it's more, I think it's very good for apologetics as well, that as we interact with people postmodern who are really struggling with, is there anything I can hang my hat on in this life that is, is true and, and is really true? And I think that this evidence of archaeology a lot of times can really give in them this, yes, I, I think this is really real, that my heart tells me that, but my mind tells me that as well, because there's no other evidence or no other explanation for some of these things that I can hold in my hand. Mm. Sam, you were in England? I was in England. What was I, going on there? I uh, speaking at a conference that I've spoken at for about eight or nine years in a row now, and it was a pastors and leaders conference. And How is England? Are they... Uh, small, uh, old, and damp. <laughs> but, but, and are you explaining the people? No, the no, 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 no. I, I love England. I love my uh, my British brothers and sisters. I have some really good friends there, and uh, uh, it was a good time. It was a quick trip. I arrived at nine thirty on Monday morning and flew back out at about noon on Friday. So like just in time to get over jet lag, and I jumped back in the plane and came back. So hmm. well, good. Well, cool. but I survived. I'm going to be doing an interview today on um, Apologetics 315, so those of you who listen to this, pick up, look at Apologetics 315, it's an interview about the Credo House and the concept that we have going on, but that's a great website, a great resource if you've never been there, apologetics315.com, I think it is, Mm -hmm. tons of interview, it's just an agglomeration of massive amounts of resources on defending the faith. 
Um, a lot of you guys have been in here recently from Theology Unplugged. Out of town, I've probably had four or five people in the last few weeks that have come in just traveling down I-35 or coming through I-40. I-35 and I-40 go to both ends of the country and meet here in Oklahoma, so it's an easy place to stop off at and come by the Credo House. But mm-hmm. I've been here for a few of you, them. Uh, a lot of you guys have asked, hey, is Sam here? Is uh, Tim here? But you guys uh, weren't here whenever these people were here at least, but I thank you guys for coming by and uh, seeing us here at the Credo House. We are starting a new series here today uh, on difficult passages of the Bible. We'll see how long it takes, but we've tried to pull out and talk about what are the passages in the Bible that give people trouble, difficult theological issues, things that, you know, if you're going to have a question-answer session about the Bible, what do people raise their hand and ask about the most? What about this passage or what about that passage? We talk sometimes about difficulties in the Bible. We talk a lot about uh, differences. I'm in discussions with people all the time on the blog, at least, where one of the adversions people have towards the faith or solidifying them in the faith is this impression that there's just so many hard things about the Bible that cause mass amounts of disagreement. As a matter of fact, we have whole traditions that... Their, their defense of themselves is because we are the unified, agreeing entity that uh, does not split, does not divide over passages and difficulties in the Bible. Now, we're going to talk about these difficulties, some of them, uh, but I, I want to start off this by saying I don't want to give the impression that everything in the Bible is difficult, right? I mean, not everything in the Bible is hard to understand, is it? No, I think the basic fundamental message um, of who God is and his redemptive purpose for mankind is clear. That's what we mean when we talk about the clarity or, to use the big fancy word, the perspicuity of Scripture. Um, So the fundamental message, the basic truths essential for salvation and Christian living are uh, intelligible. And the average person reading the Bible can make sense of them. But there are uh, some bumpy places along the way. Uh, where certain hard things are said that call for a little bit more attentiveness and uh, do result in people taking diverse positions uh, on particular passages. Hmm. So we're not those who say, leave the Bible reading to us. We'll take care of it. Just come in, stop by the Credo House, stop by Bridgeway Church before you read the Bible, and we'll tell you what to believe. But we, we tell people, pick up and read. We want you to read the scriptures. Well, and I think part of it, too, is that we live in a complicated world. We live in a world that is uh, is more gray than we like. Uh, you know, we, we like our lives to be black and white. And I think God invites us to sit at the big kids' table, to come on up to the big kids' table once in a while, sit there, and to be able to interact with him in ways that maybe he, he really uh, takes us into a place where we really have to pause and we really have to struggle with, God, what are you teaching me right now about reality? What are you trying to tell me? And that's why uh, Michael and I have been teaching at the Credo House through some of these passages. I know uh, Sam is, is publishing a two-volume work on this as well, that a lot of times I think these are places that I think God has intentionally given us a little bit of a speed bump. 
and said, let's slow down here a little bit, and I want to teach you something that maybe you're going to have to really wrestle with, but I want you to pause here because uh, because I need to teach you something that is going to be more than just a quick verse, and then you go on your way. Yeah, I, I think it's profoundly helpful in many respects that we have difficult texts. Mm-hmm. Um, I just finished a series on First Corinthians twelve through fourteen. We got to chapter fourteen. Should we talk about that? Those chapters? No, no. <laughs> I, I, kind of, it sounds like we have. I mean. um, but one thing we didn't talk about that maybe will be one of the texts we look at is Paul's statement: uh, "Let the women keep silent in the churches, for it is." But when I preached through that, I, I set forth about four or five alternative views. And I, and I could see people scratching their heads, and even a few asked, why would God even put something like this in the text? And my, my comment, my response to them is that um, if there were no difficult, challenging passages like that, we would start feeling somewhat presumptuous and arrogant. And I, it forced us to dig ever more deeply. We had to study harder. We had to look at parallel texts. And it, it was really a catalyst to helping us understand a lot of other issues. So, um, you know, I like uh, what I think it was Piper who said it, um, raking is easy, but you only get leaves. Uh, digging is harder, but you might find treasure. Hmm. So... One of the reasons why we're doing this series is to force us and our listeners to dig more deeply into the text. And I think when you do that, you find uh, you find diamonds. And I prefer diamonds over leaves. Well, let's try to find a diamond in this particular passage that we're talking about here today. Uh, it, Sam, Tim, is there any sin that the cross does not cover? I'm setting you guys up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the question we're talking about today. Is that because what we know is that people are reading the Bible, they're coming to passages, they're coming to this passage that we're going to focus on today that is seems to be saying that there's some sin against the Holy Spirit that will keep us from heaven. I mean, that a plain reading is that there is some sin against the Holy Spirit that will keep us from heaven. And the fear, I think, when you lay down at night, you close your eyes, is, yes, I've, I've responded to the gospel, but have I fallen into this category? And is there no hope for my soul uh, or for the soul of my children or, or whatever it may be? And that is uh, a real fear. And so that's why we're kicking this off by talking about this passage. Yeah, and I would just say there is forgiveness available for every sin of which one may repent. Hmm. But there is a sin of which there is no repentance. I think so. I think we're we found it in Matthew twelve. Matthew chapter twelve says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, for us, the reason why this makes it into our our uh, list of problem passages or difficult passages in the scriptures, because we do believe that the cross is not only just powerful enough to, to help us out, to, to come to the aid of us whenever, you know, we might be in need, but because we're all fallen, we're all in need, we have all sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And 
the cross is our answer. It's it's the it's what comes and and gives us the righteousness of Christ so that we don't have to stand on our own righteousness. But here we have this blasphemy of the spirit that if you have it seems against your against your account uh, the transferal of Christ's righteousness does it not cover this as well or, or what is going on here what is going on with this idea that there is any sin that can be forgiven any blasphemy that can be forgiven except for this one except for this one right issue and another reason why we want to start with this passage and why it's so important is because all of us at this table um, have people consistently contact us, whether by email or phone, or they walk into the office who are terrified they've committed the unforgivable sin. They have blasphemed against the Spirit, and they are in utter despair and are persuaded either that they therefore can never be saved, or if they were, they no longer are. This is one of the more pressing pastoral problems uh, who people who are plagued with doubt and uh, and deep conviction because some um, inadvertent mistake or uh, they cursed God in a moment of anger or they struggle with pornography or they have some addictive behavior that they can't break free of or they find themselves uh, immersed in bitterness toward God or unforgiveness toward another person and they say, I I can't break free of this. This must be the unforgivable sin. And so it becomes a very much a, a pastoral issue. Um, but it's very important that we understand the context in which this statement is found. Don't I would encourage our listeners, don't read verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 12 apart from what precedes, starting in verse 22, because there we're told that a demonized man was brought to Jesus. He's blind, he's mute. Jesus drives out the demon, he heals the man, and he does this in the presence of the religious leaders. I mean, they are standing there, uh, they are with wide eyes seeing this happen. It's not that Jesus has, um, you know, pulled a sleight of hand, it's not pulling a rabbit out of a hat, it's no trickery, there's no denying that the man was demonized, there's no denying that he was blind and he couldn't speak. And before their very eyes, Jesus sets him free and heals him. And so they look at that and they draw this conclusion. We don't deny that a miracle has occurred. It's obvious to us this man can now see and speak. You must have done it by the power of the devil. In other words, their response to this miracle was to attribute the power by which it was uh, accomplished to Satan himself. So what we're seeing here is, in a sense, the culmination of a hard-hearted repudiation of Jesus. What they are, in effect, saying is, we only have two options. Either we say that you are doing this by God's power or by the power of the Holy Spirit, or you're doing it by the power of the enemy. And they are so utterly calloused and filled with hate toward the Son of Man uh, that they attribute it to the devil. So the point of that is, uh, in terms of understanding what Jesus says, this is not simply a random act of unbelief. This isn't an isolated instance in which you inadvertently allow something to slip out of your mouth. You go, oops, I wish I hadn't said that. 
It's not... Um, yeah, oops, I, I said that and I can't ever go back on it. I'm right, done for you. Right, right. This is an expression of a settled state, a calloused attitude of hard-hearted rebellion against Christ that has reached the point at which they now say, your miracles, your powers are of Satan, not God. So what Jesus is dealing with here isn't, um, for example, that person that walks into Credo House who's broken because... Um, a man who just got in a fight with his wife and he cursed her and God and he's commit, commit, convinced he's lost his salvation. We're talking about people who, who actually watched lepers' skin um, suddenly appear clean. These are people who watched Jesus raise people from the dead, who watched people that they knew had been paralyzed for 40 years or blind from birth suddenly walk and see. And they're confronted in a way with the evidence that there's no, there are no um, loopholes here. There's no options. Either God did it or Satan did it. And they're saying Satan did it. And since we know that Jesus performed his miracles through the power of the Spirit, in fact, he even says it here, that I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God. In other words, that's the power by which I'm doing this. For you to then say, no, I'm doing it by Satan, is blasphemy against the Spirit. It's interesting. He says, you didn't commit blasphemy against the Son. You committed blasphemy against the Spirit because you're attributing to the devil the work that the Spirit of God himself has done. And I think he's saying it's an indication that you have reached a point beyond which um, there is no forgiveness. And the reason there's no forgiveness is because it's clear in your hearts there's no repentance. If there were repentance, forgiveness is available. But you have so hardened yourself, so uh, set your soul against who I am, and attributed it. And, you know, you're not even saying, well, we don't have an answer. Uh, we don't know how you did this. Maybe God did it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe you're just a powerful prophet. They're saying, no, you did it by the devil's power. Jesus is saying that's an indication that your hardness of heart has gone beyond a point at which repentance would be possible. That's why the sin is unforgivable. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, uh, just to keep it going, now this is later on, but in, in John 15, Jesus tells us that when the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And so part of the role of the Spirit is to testify to people about who Jesus is. And so we have the, the power of the Spirit working here, uh, through Jesus, people are seeing this. The role of the Spirit is for people to see their Savior when they see Jesus, to fall before him. And, and not only repentance, but saying, this is the only one in whom repentance can ever be found. That, that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And so they are rejecting the only one that can save them. And so they are rejecting the, the work of the Spirit to lead them to Christ. They're rejecting the actual physical work of Christ or work of the Spirit that they can see Christ doing. And they're just saying, all of this is wrong. I'm just going to keep going my own way. You know, they had no room for their Savior. And when you have no room for your Savior, you have no Savior. So you have no salvation for your sins. You're, you're damned. Uh, because you've rejected the only Savior. And uh, and yes, they could 
you know, we would all say if someone comes up to me and says, I've rejected, you know, I've heard the gospel through 20 different times and I've rejected 20 different times, am I damned forever? And, and I, we would all say, no, you know, you can trust Jesus today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but what we're seeing these is people who are in this ongoing state of rejection of Christ, uh, they have no hope. They are hopeless. Those who were listening to this, uh, those who, who, to whom he was speaking, were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were often accusing uh, people of blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, blasphemy was kind of a fluid thing in this day to where you, you could get accused of blasphemy for many different things. As you can see, reading through the Gospels, many times Christ is accused of blasphemy. Blasphemy, he blasphemes, you know, because he, he being a man, makes himself equal with God at one point. And then before the trial, this man has committed blasphemy. What other need of witnesses do we have to have? So this blasphemy charge was going around in a lot of different ways. These guys, whenever I read this and they attribute Christ's power to Satan... I don't hear them say anything about the Holy Spirit. They don't say, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, in, in any context. But it's real interesting whenever Christ says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. Now, it's only at that point you see that Christ is indicting these people right then of, by, as you said, attribution of his powers to Satan, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, the thing that really gets me here is this. He says, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. Mm-hmm. Now, now, these guys, they thought blasphemy, you know, the moment you committed blasphemy, you're done for. But what he's saying is, here's the one blasphemy that's escaping your notice every time you, you charge me with it. There's only one. And that is what you are doing here in rejecting me. That's the blasphemy that cannot be forgiven, but every other sin can be forgiven. And that's one thing that stands out here, because I think we focus so much upon the negative of this passage and don't see the positive Mm -hmm. that is embedded deeply within this. Mm -hmm. What an incredible message to come to bring to these people that any sin and any blasphemy will be forgiven. And I think we've all, in many sense, blasphemed the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've we've done it both by word and by deed. Mm-hmm. And have a lot of people out there right now, you say, "Have I committed blasphemy?" Mm-hmm. I say, "Of course you have. We all have in some degree." Yeah. But have you committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the way that we're talking about? Right. And another question that comes up: um, scholars debate this. Some suggest that this sin could only be committed when Jesus was on the earth in his state of humiliation. Because, you know, it's interesting. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But you speak against the Holy Spirit, you won't be forgiven either now or in the age to come. And the question is, why? And, again, I'm not putting this forward because I necessarily believe it, but it's interesting. It's an interesting suggestion. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I I don't... Uh, I don't come to you looking divine. I'm an average man. I am flesh and blood. There's a sense in which I can understand why you would look at me and not conclude uh, that I am anything other than human. But when I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, perform this kind of miracle in an undeniable way... For you then to say that the spirit by whom I do that is in fact Satan, uh, then you then there's no excuse. There, there's no there's no flexibility here 
because you have um, you have taken something that is so obvious and you have attributed that to the power of the devil. Um, so the question then becomes, okay, Jesus is no longer physically on the earth in his humble state. Uh, he is now exalted and glorified. So is it possible for somebody to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit today in the same way in which Jesus meant it then? That's a that's a very interesting question. I'm not entirely sure I know how to answer that. Would we say, I know we, we've given answers that are, that are somewhat of the general ilk of the circles that we would hold to uh, theologically, it, but... But is blasphemy of the spirit an act or a persistence? It's a persistence. Yeah. It's a. It's not the way I put it. It's not a casual act. It's a calloused attitude. In other words, it's a deep-seated defiance of what you know otherwise to be true. And it never stops. Right. Never stops. Of which you do not repent simply because, by its very nature, you have hardened yourself. Um, so profoundly and so deeply. So that's why, I mean, just from the pastoral perspective, and I know, Michael, you and I have talked about this because we've communicated with some of the same people on this issue. The people listening to this who are living in terror and fear and despair because they think they've committed blasphemy of the Spirit, I guarantee you, you haven't. If you had, you wouldn't be in fear. You wouldn't care. The, the the indication, the fact that you have some measure of anxiety and you're feeling conviction and guilt means that you haven't settled into that callous state of hard-heartedness that has put you beyond the realm of forgiveness and repentance. So I, I tell people, hey, the good news is that you're really bothered by the fact that you think you've committed blasphemy in the Spirit because that proves you haven't. So that, I mean, that's just a word of encouragement to those who are listening to us who are saying, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm terrified that I'm beyond the, the point of no return. And I say, look, if you, if you weren't terrified, we'd have concern. The fact that you are is good news. It's an ignorant bliss outside right. of that. And a hard-hearted defiance. You're, and, and that doesn't, I tell people again, um, you know, thank the Lord that you're feeling the conviction and you're sensing that, that awareness of having failed the Lord. That means that you're nowhere near the condition or the state of heart in which these Pharisees found themselves. This is one of the things that I disagreed with um, Pilgrim's Progress, one of the great books of all time. I love the book. But there was one place where this guy that was the unforgiven was in a cage, and he was locked in the cage, and he says, I have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I can never get out of this cage. And so that was kind of the theme within that uh, on John Bunyan. There's this other thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Sam don't really necessarily suggest you go see it but it's uh, called the god who wasn't there video no i haven't seen oh uh, it's it's a really well done video i mean just great music the music is worth it all uh for the video but it's extremely popular and it's kind of what atheists hand out it's their track video and in the video the guy at the end says i i charge you with a blasphemy challenge like i am so he puts the camera up to his face, you know, in kind of uh, postmodern way where you have the camera and it's shaking. And he said, I, so-and-so, Michael Fleming, I think is his name, deny you the Holy Spirit in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. So he says, I have committed the unforgivable sin. I challenge you now to go commit the unforgivable sin at blasphemychallenge.com and upload your video. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of videos. And it's 
and, and it's eerie because you, you get these little kids, these little 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds getting on this video saying, I deny you Holy Spirit. Believing, kind of in a cool way, almost like having 666 tattooed on you. You know, it's branded on me that I'm a rebel. Believing that they have committed the unforgivable sin. Now, those people who have done that, we would say, no, you, you really haven't committed the unforgivable sin because it has to do with your persistent mm-hmm. rejection of God. And so even if you have made one of those videos, mm-hmm. you're one of the hundreds of thousands of people who have made those videos and you think you are beyond that, you aren't. Because it is the persistence. Yeah, repent. Yeah. Repent and believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And That's why it's important to note, um, I don't know that we can ever know when somebody has committed blasphemy of the Spirit, but we can know when they haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this reminds me of, of C.S. Lewis, a little bit of, of his story of coming to Christ and surprised by joy, is that he, he was an atheist. He probably would have made one of those videos in younger years, and then uh, came to a place where he said, uh, after God had, had had just made it clear to him that, that he, was, he was real and that he existed and all of these things, he said, one night in his room, he kicking and screaming came to God and, and gave his life to him and, and believed in him and trusted in him. And then he, he said in later years, he reflected on that and he said, uh, it wasn't so bizarre for me. He said, well, he made this statement that he was the most reluctant believer in Europe at the time when he became a believer. And he said, and what's odd is not that I came so reluctantly, but that God accepted me in such a state. And, and, and which I thought was very powerful was that he saw the grace of God that if you've uploaded a video like that, if you have led people to become atheists, if you have uh, sworn at God over and over again, you've raised your middle finger at God time and time again, that God will still accept you. And, uh, and that is amazing grace, that he will accept you on those terms. It's a reason for the cross. If we don't have that, no cross necessary. Uh, any sin, any blasphemy will be forgiven of man, except what? This rejection. If you come and you die on your bed and you're saying... I think that the stuff that Christ did was either not real or you're persistent in saying, I think it was of Satan. That is persistent sin till death that will not be forgiven either in this age. And here's the key thing, not let this fear pass by or in the age to come. There's not a second chance. Well, this whole second chance idea you get there and maybe uh, maybe it'll all, all ultimately be reconciled, even hell itself even in the age to come. And I think that just puts the benchmark of, of, of fear on ultimate rejection of God. Yeah. Murder, adultery, homosexuality, divorce, abortion, suicide. All of those things are often said, these are the things that you have crossed the line. And they aren't. They're not. Oh, yeah, that's, that, that's good. I mean, it raises a whole other... We could speak forever on this, but it's, I'm glad you made that point because I know that people are sitting out there saying, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know how many times I've fallen. You don't know the, the kind of uh, not only sins, but the crimes that I've committed. And we're saying to you, um, these are sins of which you may repent. And we would plead with you that you do so. You have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I think that allows us to see 
the the larger you see God, the more holy you see God, the more sinful you see everyone and the more need that every human being has. That's why in Ephesians it says that it is by faith, uh, is God's grace, our faith, that we are saved, and it's not by works of any kind, so that no one can boast. In heaven, no one will be boasting. And, uh, and that's why uh, Charles Spurgeon said there's enough sin in a single prayer to sentence someone to hell forever. When you compare our sinfulness to God's holiness. Even approaching the throne of God could sentence us to hell forever. And so if there's anything that you think you've ever done, you're not understanding the holiness of God, and you're not understanding our sinfulness, and the true grace when God offers us through his son, uh, salvation. All right, guys, hopefully this has been helpful for that difficult passage there in Matthew. Next week, we're going to continue on on our difficult passages, and uh, we certainly appreciate you joining us and glad to have you guys back. Until next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.